Welcome to Ruminations from the Red Room. I'm your host, Mitch Proctor, and today we're doing our introductory episode, even though we've already had a couple different opportunities to sit down and chat with the samurai, and you will have heard him on a couple other casts that are featured on the Ruminations Radio Network, uh, particularly the retro-futurist culture, but we have him here today to kind of get to know him again, get to, uh, an idea of what this upcoming podcast is going to be about, and uh, we're super glad to have him Ruminations from a six-button samurai. Welcome. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Man, um, I'm just, you know, and I think I've said this to you before, and I may have even said it when you hosted, uh, when when we uh, put your tracks down for that uh, first episode, which mm-hmm. the listeners will get a chance to hear soon. Mm-hmm. But of probably all the podcast that we've launched and that we are launching and we talk to people about and kind of pitching yours seemed to be the one that time and time again, at first blush, people would say, Oh, that's interesting. And then they'd hear us mangle a description, trying to conjure the way that you were able to describe it. And even in our mangled, sad, pathetic way of describing what you had planned. Come on. <laughs> no, well, I mean, it, but you really inspired and we would try and tell people about it and they would they would even listening to my sad replication would be like oh my god that sounds really really interesting so just for our listeners uh from the red room listeners in case they haven't had an opportunity because we got to do these introductory episodes with everybody else give us a quick rundown of what ruminations of a six button samurai is going to be well my goal with this project um I think too often, you know, video games live in a world of perpetually being obsessed with like the next big thing. I mean, we're in the middle of a next gen (laughs) console launch right now. So our eyes are, you know, firmly fixed on, all right, what's, what's the deal with PS5 and Xbox series S or X, you know, what's happening with that. Um, At the same time, there's also been this, um, bigger than ever momentum behind the idea of retro gaming where, you know, Nintendo just put out a um, commemorative game and watch for super Mario brothers. Yes. Um, you've had the spate of mini consoles come out the last few years. Um, but I feel like a thing that's been sort of critically missing from all of that is sort of, you know, the idea of really looking at these games as like individual works and, you know, taking a look at the moment in your life when one of these like really meant something to you and kind of, you know, maybe what it reflected in terms of like the things that were happening in your life or maybe the way it drove you towards some strange sort of choice that might not have occurred in your own life had you not encountered this thing. Um I just think that in general, video games are really not nearly as highly regarded as they should be as sources of inspiration, really. I mean, we talk about books and art and movies and music all the time in this manner, but I don't think we really get into games nearly as much. Um, One of the people whose work I really love is uh, the guy named jeremy parish who does Uh the retronauts videos on youtube and he's really looking at it more as like a sort of iterative thing where like you know famicom was built specifically to handle donkey kong which is true 
but then it spawned these other games and then super mario brothers was kind of meant to be like the end all be all of what the famicom was capable of but it ended up spawning this entire other revolution of stuff and so i think that's really cool and interesting but i really want to get people to sort of look at their own individual journeys within the hobby and sort of think about like why did that thing really appeal to me at a particular time? Like, what did it represent? Like what else was happening in my life that made me Why go, did I latch onto it? What, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like why did I glom onto this thing when, you know, there were like, you know, in my case, I came up during the golden age of arcade. So it's like, why did this one mean so much as opposed to like the 35 other games at golf and mm-hmm. stuff at the time? You know what I mean? So I love that kind of deep dive into the whys because for me, and, and as you mentioned, like, um, music and movies, they always get a little bit, well, I mean, compared to games, certainly more uh, respect and games get relegated to toys. Right. And and the identification of like what those mean or why you t- were attracted. Like when I think about the music that I was attracted to at different ages, I mean, there were, there was reason behind it. There was an autobiographical story going on and a, why I identified with the cure at a certain point in my life it was probably tied to what else was going on. Mm-hmm. And so why not give games that same platform, that same theater in which to kind of dissect and understand mm-hmm. what's happening? I, awesome. Yeah. No, I mean, that's definitely the thing that I'd like to get at is sort of, you know, um, you know, I've I've done some writing in my own right. There's been some screenplay projects, this, that, and the other. And the thing that I'm trying to dig for um I heard a really great piece of advice not too long ago, and it's been sort of guiding the stuff that I do at this point where it's like, what is the ground that I stand on? You know, what are the things that I've been through that nobody else is going to express in the exact same way? And how do I produce the most interesting or tangible or relatable um, version of that? So you know, those are kind of the things that are driving this particular project. Um, it's a story only you can tell. Exactly. It's it's unique to you. Mm-hmm. But, but I think also everybody wait, has wait. a story like that. If they begin yeah. to dig into whatever it is that they love, you know, they're going to find many of the same connections, you know, like, oh, God, I stayed up all night with this <laughs> thing one time or, you know, I bought I. I took half of my shoe money where I was supposed to buy like a pair of Jordans and I, I picked out some shitty Nikes and picked up ghouls and ghosts, you know, which, you know, that's, that's a story I'm going to end up telling soon. So, you know, there's, there's, there's all these different ways of sort of shading it and kind of evaluating the, the places you've been and, you know, why, why this thing continues to mean something to you. So I, I, I hope people will just sort of find like, a sort of relatable template for exploring their own stuff through, through my uh, going into this. Well, you know what, for me, even in just a a small way, for example, um, you're familiar with like the one art one up arcade cabinets, right? Mm -hmm. Those guys. And while they're not like perfect and they're not like hardcore um, accurate, sometimes there's still like something about them that drives people to, to be attracted to it. And even myself, my story being that, Recently, I, I splurged on the Miss Pac-Man cabinet. Mm-hmm. I knew that I loved Miss Pac-Man. I knew that there was something about that outer shell. And I could get Miss Pac-Man in a thousand other uh, formats or platforms. True. But, but that 
that cabinet with the the particular blue and the pink and the yellow something about it just just calls to me and it makes me feel a certain way when i look at that or when i stand next to it and play it and your premise of this podcast really made me stop and think about that more like right. why does this hold such a place in my heart what is it that drives me to to love this game so much cuz it's hard it's pretty simple it's pretty straightforward but mm-hmm. there must be something more and there was right no i mean that's that's the thing about these older experiences particularly when it came to arcade cabinets was like it really was like a weird sum total of like you know, the particular control panel it had, you know, did it have like a strange vector graphics screen, you know, was that particular machine at your arcade extremely loud, you know, there's (laughs) all these weird, you know, it's, it was really a weird sort of sea of choices to navigate, you know, particularly when you're like seven or eight years old and you're wandering through this place with all these other people and they're making their own choices. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting to sort of pick apart, like, well, why did you, why did you wander to that one? You know, what was, what was the deal with the choice made? Yeah. So we're, we're uh, well, when I was seven or eight years old, I could, you know, barely see the, uh, you know, the control panel could barely reach the joystick. Were you six foot tall when you were seven? No, no. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm six or four now, but. I didn't really sprout until like my junior year of high school. Like I was, I was pretty, I was, I was a pretty average height for a long time until that growth spurt. So, so you're part of where the myth came from. Like my Nana and my mom used to always tell me when I was in high school, Oh, don't worry. You'll, you, you still grow. You'll get taller. You know, (laughs) (laughs) as people like you who did have that like late term, like spurt that uh, got them. See, and that's when I realized that adults lie. (laughs) <laughs> like I never got that. <laughs> they were telling you something to make you feel better yeah i was like well sixth grade was it huh okay great thanks guys appreciate it and meanwhile they're like well, maybe you'll have a camaro by the time you're 17 <laughs> you know maybe this will work out <laughs> oh all in all though can't complain yeah no not at all <laughs> um so a couple of quick things that uh that the listeners are going to get to to here on your episode one, episode zero, uh, but we can kind of prelude to right now, if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. In that uh, cast, you talked about pinball. Mm-hmm. And when you were talking about it, it, it struck me. I was like, well, w- did you f- continue to play pinball or did the, the games, did you did you ever go back to pinball? Because I guess it was one of the first things you you liked on the Atari. You said, you know, one of the weird like the real real thing. Here's a weird thing about it: like, I've never developed much of a fetish for pinball beyond video game pinball, which is really really weird. Like, I realize how weird that is when you break it down because pinball machines are like this really awesome mechanical tactile thing. Yeah, And like, I get why other people, you know, there are, there are players that do nothing but play pinball. And I mean, there's entire conventions, you know, there's a whole other scene that's dedicated to that specific thing. And the thing was for me, like I tried playing a variety of pinball games when I was a kid, but I was never as good at them as I was at other video games. Uh So that's kind of what decided that. But I mean, 
I still continued to have a fixation on like interesting video pinball games. Interesting. Like there were a variety of 16 bit ones that I love to death. Um, Alien Crush, Devil's Crush on the Turbo Graphics, um, some of the other import ones on Mega Drive and Super Famicom. But um, yeah, that is that is like a really strange sort of <laughs> sidebar to that. Is like yeah, I never never really developed much of a fetish for pinball proper. And I can't say that I know the pinball community really well either mm-hmm. or at all really. So maybe maybe um, the pinball aficionados don't really view video game pinball as, as real pinball. I don't know. I'm, I'm sure they don't. What... <laughs> <laughs> I'd be like, willing to bet. Cool. I mean, you know, the whole reason that people end up spending like thousands of dollars on trying to nail down like the one cabinet that they really, really loved or restore something is that, you know, we, we still don't have access to time travel, you know, but having one of these, you know, mythic beasts in your home is like really the closest way that you can come to it. So I think that's, I think that's a little bit part of what's driving your joy with this, you know, new school arcade one up Miss Pac-Man cab, you know, it's, it's definitely filling, filling that void. Well, as soon as I, I fired up and I hear those tones, and what's particularly great about this this uh, edition of their cabinet is it does have a light up marquee, mm-hmm. and I love that. And then just transported, so it's psychological, it's mental time travel just instantly, mm-hmm. and it's it's great. You know, it's really really cool. No, um, I believe it. I mean, one of the other things that's sort of a thing I don't like about modern gaming is the fact that. You know, every console under the sun now can basically do all this other shit. I mean, you can sure. watch like a hundred <laughs> different streaming services, this, that, and the other. You can share stuff, you know, screenshots or video yeah. clips to social media. Um, there really is a certain joy in plugging into a device that does one thing. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I think that's really part of the magic of something like an actual arcade cabinet or even a reproduction. You know? Do you think that's kind of a generational thing, though? Maybe uh, for you, at least, and for myself, like. Well, certainly, we're drawing today. upon that history, yeah, right? Yeah, like we're drawing yeah. upon our our own personal voyages that make that stuff relevant. Um, I don't know, because like I've heard stories about, and I mean, this is totally like they're totally kind of influenced in this way where like there'll be people that are like manufacturers or designers of retro products. And sometimes they'll have their kids like enjoying much the same stuff, you know, but I find it interesting that even kids of that age who clearly they know iPads exist or they know about the Xbox and the PlayStation five, this, that, and the other, but there, a lot of times they're still able to sort of see oh, like, this is a fun thing, and this is why this does this, you know what I mean? So, I don't know. I mean, we're, so, we're definitely hopelessly biased. <laughs> yeah, know? and there's no, and yeah, we can't possibly take remove ourselves from that experience or our own history. Mm-hmm. But my, my question is, are there things that are, are inherently and inextricably uh, valuable in something that has, like, a singular purpose or something that has that type of tactile response, you know, like like the arcade games or like a, this machine, it plays Miss Pac-Man. No, it doesn't do Netflix. It, it does not Twitch, mm-hmm. but it plays Miss Pac-Man. Like, uh, I think the most, 
I think the most obvious example would be like the resurgence of, of uh, vinyl sales. That's a really good connection. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's a, that's a thing where like, you've got a record, it's got two sides <laughs> and about an hour worth of audio all told. Yeah. But you know, people are taking a lot of pleasure in not only, you know, the sort of warmer sound that's drawn mm-hmm. audiophiles forever, but like, you know, having this tangible thing, having this huge piece of artwork and liner notes yes. and all of that, you know, like people still really hunger for more of a connection to the piece of art and its creator than is possible when you just have your $11 streaming music subscription. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it's That makes not... me feel good. I'm filled with hope with that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, that's, there's a lot of people you know, now given what a savage prospect it is for ever getting paid as a musician, you know, people are looking for those other avenues. Like, Hey, can I buy a t-shirt directly from you guys? Can I buy your album straight off a of Bandcamp? You know, are there yeah. other ways of, you know, building on your connection and rewarding the people that have created these things? So, you know, it's just, it's kind of a strange, just evolving thing. and you know, right now, unfortunately, it's, it's got much more of a corporate death grip on it than it ever had before. But you know, there's still, people are still finding ways to get paid as artists, you know, it's just not happening nearly as often as it should. Do you think that the arcade, which was already uh, having a really tough time, do you think that it bounces back from this or maybe in a new way? I mean, I know that theaters, for example, we're trying new things to try and draw people in even before the pandy yeah and uh, you know changing the format up a little bit and arcades have evolved a little bit do you think that arcades bounce back from this i don't know that they can ever really come back in the same way um primarily because like the machines themselves are in ever dwindling numbers you know besides like the yeah. new school things that have arisen to sort of take their places where you've got new kinds of cabinets built with flat screens, this, that, and the other. Um, or like really big vertical orientation yeah. to be like the tablets or phones that everyone's used to using now. Right. I think it's going to wind up, you know, there's always going to be a place for specialty shows or like conventions, this, that, and the other. And I think it's going to, ultimately that's going to wind up being more and more of a road show thing. And I mean, mm we're really getting to a point now where like that first generation of people that design the first wave of games, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of leaving us now. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, who's to say, I mean, I think there's always lessons to be learned from the designs of those things. And I think the really good talent that are making great games now, they're still continually drawing upon, the earlier works you know to inform those things because human beings themselves don't really work in radically different ways you know there's still ways to to craft a level so that it actually teaches you how to play the game without resulting in a really stilted like tutorial experience you know so well you mentioned of the early days and the creators and something that i really really loved in your first episode was your mentioning of those early works in gaming was kind of equivalent to the silent film era of Hollywood, like Space Invader, where the the storytelling was very minimal Mm -hmm. based off of just what little things they could do. 
do you think that because of those those naturally kind of um, built in hurdles, do you think that the industry uh, benefited from that? That's like, say, for example, if if games hadn't come up when they did, like if they had someone had not thought of the beauty of a video game and then now created it with the technology that was built in now, could they have evolved the same way? Would storytelling have, have been the same? Would the early years of gameplay is king, would that have changed if someone just walked in and started making games now? Like if I think they would still draw upon lessons about just the way people approach things when they're brand new and how they think about recreation. You know what I mean? I, I uh-huh. still think um, there's a lot of games that are still drawing upon those same lessons. And I think if that art form hadn't existed prior, I still think it would largely be the same thing, you know, where people uh-huh. sort of build things in really um, kind of self-iterating ways where, you know, first stage of a given whatever is going to have <laughs> this, this, and this, and you're going to learn how to use this thing and you have to avoid these. And, you know, there's still some really inherent basic things that just appeal to, you know, human beings innate sense of play, like whatever culture they come from. Do you think that innate sense of play, uh, in like for in the animal kingdom, play replicates uh, future challenges? What and your loving of something like Space Invaders, you know, being your first? Did you say that was your first game? You stayed up till dawn, yeah, playing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you think that uh, translated in, later in life to to having such, you know, drive? If you don't mind my saying, drive and and pursuit of your goals because you've really done a lot of great stuff and really stretched your boundaries and, and you know to my view of what you've done do you think that those things are kind of just like built into you um and that's why it appealed i think because of the way that i came up in you know kind of constantly having to adapt to different situations which you know i talk a little bit about on a personal level in that episode um I do just have like a naturally restless intellect. I mean, I do. And, you know, I tend to be a person that's either like completely laser focused on a thing or just not connected. You know what I mean? So um, I definitely have that sort of restless thing when it comes to playing these things even though like you know right now i have a fairly horrific backlog of games to <laughs> to work on and you know I've, I've beat far less of my switch library than i'm comfortable admitting right now but um no i mean i've always had that sort of restless you know wanderer's heart kind of thing well i, I think it's it's quite admirable i mean some of us are just too uh set in our ways or we get kind of comfortable and you know, I know speaking for myself, sometimes it's difficult to break out and do new things. And even though I enjoy them once I do, uh, you know, it's it's something that's really attractive about you. It's something that's really cool, man. Thank you. Um, I, I have a question that's personal, but you did bring it up on your cast. Okay. For the episode. Yeah. And I've known you since, what do you think, like 1998? 97 possibly earlier but yeah about that long because i i landed i sat down in tucson in 95 okay 
Um, How long so, after that did you wind up at software, et cetera? It was, uh, I've been, uh, that was 97, 98, I think. Okay. But I have to imagine that we probably met at Bookman's. Okay. Before I was at software. Okay. So when did you start there? I started at Bookman's in April of 98. Okay. Yeah. So you, but you know what? I think I remember you working at VG1 when we were there. Did you I did actually work there before I worked at Bookman's. Okay. Yeah. So it's probably way. there. Yeah. Either way to the, uh, to the cobwebs of time, our, mm-hmm. our friendship goes back. Yeah. And I, and just a side note of friendship. And when you're young, like, it's interesting. Like I, I can't now imagine, uh, as readily making friends with people as I did when I was younger, you know, you get a little older, a little bit, I don't know what happens, but like, I don't even remember how we struck up that friendship and how we got to be friends. It just, you know, definitely organic over time, mm-hmm. but I can't recall. Right. Did we play some games someplace? Did we, you know, when did, when did I first end up coming over to your place to play Halo? You know, <laughs> you I mean, know, that definitely, that, how's that happen? You know, I think I had sort of followed you around the stores. And of course I'll never forget picking up my U S Dreamcast. Yes. At your store. But then you also drove me up to Phoenix to get my import one. I do remember that. That was that was a great adventure. <laughs> yes. Yes, yeah. So, no, I I think you you definitely were like one of the people that would regularly come into that store at VG1. So, uh-huh. if that's correct, then that's definitely like 1996. Wow. So, yeah. So, it kind of started early. Seeds are planted. Yeah. Huh. But that was cool. also where um Optimus was a regular as well. Like he yeah. would also come into our store. <laughs> um, in fact, here's an amusing aside about Hoptimus. I literally met Hoptimus when, <clears throat> you know, we, we just did that episode of Retro Futurist Culture about Robocop. Yeah. Um, I met him in the summer of either 95 or 96 while I was working at that store. I had purchased a Japanese laser disc of Street Fighter the Animated Movie. And, you know, I had to plunk down extra for a brand new VCR because I was actually trying to tear myself away from VHS at the time. But I realized that as this had not been released in the U.S. yet, I could churn out fairly decent copies (laughs) from my Laserdisc player to this VHS and charge like 20 bucks a pop for them. Nice. <laughs> so I had the movie running on a VHS player at the store. Oh. And I would just have copies of these tapes in my bag. <laughs> and the thing was, like, hey, man, no, you, like you know what? This actually took place even before that because I had Optimus meet me at the software, et cetera, at Tucson Mall, which uh-huh. you didn't work at yet. Nope. And I remember telling Optimus over the phone, I was like, just look for the big guy in the Raiders cap. <laughs> and he was, you know, uh, God, I mean, in that time I would have been like 21 and he yeah. was like 17 and he's just like, Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, 20 bucks. <laughs> so now that I come to think about God, that really was kind of a like, Jay and Silent Bob <laughs> sort of <laughs> existence in that mall as I was 
hawking these video cassette copies of a movie that wasn't out here yet. I think that Tucson Mall was like the hub of like VHS um, bootlegs because I used to go to the Strictly CDs there and I was actually talking to one of our, what will be one of our newest hosts coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and she worked at the Strictly CDs there. Yeah. And I used to buy bootleg VHS under the table there of like live shows and things, ah, you know, right and on. I, <laughs> <so funny. laughs> well, and you know, in Tucson was a smaller town then, even in just that amount of time, I feel like it's, it was a smaller place. Definitely. Wow. That is crazy. But the question <laughs> yeah, five minutes later was, was Jimmy as a nickname. Yeah. And just as you know, for the audience to get to know you, did you go by that with your, with your family? Were you always Jimmy? Among the people on my mom's side of the family, Jimmy was always a thing. Uh-huh. Then later, they started calling me Jim because you can't really call someone Jimmy when you have to look up at him. Um, <laughs> and everybody does. Yeah, and on my on my dad's side though, it was always Jim for some reason, and I assumed that had to do with trying to navigate between my father, who is the third. They call him Jeff. And then his father, they all called Junior. Okay. Yeah. So, makes sense. yeah. And you're. I was Jim. You're Jim. Mm hmm. Because I think that I always called you James. Uh huh. And is that. That uh, was just how I. I ended up just riding with that in the workplace. Like it just made the most sense. And for me, it was also sort of a like, you know marker of layers of intimacy sort of thing like sure only my family would call me jim or jimmy like if you knew me as a little kid then you were you may still call me jimmy you know that's gotcha. still a thing i still have a few cousins that resort to that and i think it's hilarious yeah. when i hear it like it you know <laughs> it makes me feel good um but yeah i don't yeah that's that's a that's a strange thing the way that evolved yeah Oh, it's, it is interesting for me as well, because when I came to Tucson, uh, I, my, my whole life, I went by Mitchell, all the people who knew me called me Mitchell mm-hmm. and people who didn't know me would assume that my nickname was Mitch and would call me Mitch. Mm-hmm. Then when I came to Tucson, all the people who were close to me, all my friends called me Mitch and anyone who didn't know me called me Mitchell. So it kind of flipped. Right. But, but I've got this history with my friends, including Anthony, who's the host of the uh, Tony's Tall Tales. Mm-hmm. I called him Tony for years. Mm. And uh, it wasn't until later, as I suddenly realized when we'd introduce uh, ourselves or we'd be out and, you know, out and about, and he would say, uh, oh, yeah, I'm Anthony. We'd meet new people and he'd say, I'm Anthony, I'm Anthony. And I finally, years after knowing him, was like, dude, do you prefer Anthony? Because I had just started calling him Tony off of a whim when I first met him. And he's like, yeah, kind of. <laughs> I was like, oh, shit, I'm so sorry. Like five years, I've been calling you Tony because I met you in the mall uh-huh. again. Another friend at the start of the mall. So, uh, if if all these years that I was too formal with you, uh, I hope that you know no, that not at all. No, I okay. mean it's totally cool. Here's it. Okay, I have a funny sidebar. Okay, uh, you and I have a really good friend in common. His name is Eddie Tang. Yes, I love and, the guy. Um, very early on, he was also somebody that would come into that store in 1996, and for the longest time, I called him Henry, and I don't know how that came to be, but like literally, he would come in, 
he'd buy like an issue of diehard game fan and a Saturn <laughs> game or whatever. Yeah. And I'd be like, thanks so much, Henry. He'd be like, yeah, thanks. <laughs> and the thing was, it was maybe like two years later that we were in like a mutual setting playing arcade games somewhere. It might've been like Aaron's family billiards or maybe golf yeah. and stuff. Um, somebody else called him Eddie. And for me, like the needle went right off the record. <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. Is your name Eddie? He was like, <laughs> yeah. And I was like, I've been calling you Henry for two years. Like, why didn't you say anything? He's just like, because you're bigger than I am. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, that's so great. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, he's a uh, God. That guy's character too. You know, at some point yeah. we may have to rope in him in. Oh, I would love that. On one of these things, great. you know, especially because oh, he's been out in Japan now teaching English for like, good Lord, like 13 years now. And, yeah. you know, as somebody who's really privy to that scene right now, that that might be an interesting thing to pick apart. Yeah, kind of in the motherland, right? Exactly. Wow, cool. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, man, thanks for this uh, trip down memory lane and giving us another little bit of insight into your person. And I'm sure that uh, the listener that we have is excited to get to know you better. Um it's just, it's going to be a great experience and a great ride. I'm looking forward to it. Even as someone who uh, is bold enough to call you friend, you know, <laughs> to know you, <laughs> to get to know you better like that, uh, Jim. I'm looking forward to it, man. And I hope people enjoy it and sort of take something away for themselves. Cool. Cool. All right. Well, Hey, thanks again for listening to ruminations from the red room. Don't forget to check out the website ruminationsradionetwork.com to check out a bunch of the other great shows and hosts and content that we're going to have up there for you. It's been a pleasure and we hope that you have a great rest of your whatever. Let us know.